You're listening to episode 212, The Power of Tenacity, with Ron Corey. Same thing that was it was in business. Failure is not an option. Yeah. I just went into every day looking to, I mean, if it was right after surgery, I wanted to get out of the bed. I wanted to walk. I wanted to start moving, try to start working out again, get my, some muscle tone back. I mean, there was, I was a year after surgery in bed, a month in the hospital, and then uh, 11 months at home. Wow. So you have muscle atrophy. You, you have to rebuild everything. You have to get your wind back and develop some muscle tone. So uh, just don't let failure be an option. Take it on like you would a business challenge and uh, pursue every day with a level of vigor and inspiration that uh, you come out the other side. This is the dance of life. My name is Tudor Alexander and we are gonna go on a journey to hack your mind, body and soul for living your best life yet. Tune in every week to learn something new, grow, and get inspired as we discover the secrets of success and practice the art of fulfillment. And if it's one thing I hope you learn from today, it's that your life is a dance. And just like any dance, you can learn to dance it well. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Happy Friday. So happy to have you here today. Abraham Lincoln, taken away for us today, is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak up and remove all doubt. What a wonderful quote, especially in today's world. My goodness. You know, it's really about choosing your words wisely, right? And in many ways, your actions too, because uh, remaining silent in a sense would be not acting and, and making a decision that will remove all doubt that you're a fool. So today is really about making right decisions because that's the key for success, whether it's in your business, in your health, in life in general. And my guest today has had to make a lot of tough decisions in business, in health, to get to where he is today. His name is Ron Corey. He's a major business figure in Las Vegas, a former U.S. Marine, and most recently he wrote a book called Tenacity, which is a memoir focused on the determination necessary to overcome any and all unjust obstacles that may stand in the way of your dreams. As he lived and climbed the ladder of success for 45 years in Las Vegas, he faced a barrage of constraints, including political and police corruption, bribery, coercion, even death threats. Along the way, Ron also had a couple of offers to settle matters discreetly with a few well-placed bullets. His choices would have life-altering consequences for many. Ron is also an esophageal cancer survivor, inspiring others with his story of perseverance. If you want to connect with Ron, he's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Ron Corey, author. That's spelled R-O-N-C-O-U-R-Y, author. All in one word. And he's also offering a free copy of his book. If you go to roncoreauthor.com, you can get the book there as well and see what that's about. It's a, it's a wonderful story he has to share with people. I mean, he's been through so much, and I'm super excited to sit down with him and to pick his brain about business, to pick his brain about tenacity and living with tenacity 
and all of the challenges that he's had and how he's overcome them. So I'm super excited to share this interview with you guys. Ron is a very successful person, but he's also very humble, very, very nice guy, one of the most genuine people I've ever met. And again, esophageal cancer, that's an 8% chance of surviving. So, you know, that is huge. That's, that's very inspiring. And I'm really honored to share his story with you. So if anybody in your life, if you're going through a tough time right now, or if you know anybody going through a tough time, needs a little inspiration uh, from, a, from a wonderful story of perseverance, share this episode with them. You never know the difference you're going to make in somebody's life. And I appreciate you for doing it. Because if they take action, if something changes inside them, it makes a breakthrough, that's worth it, right? So... Without further ado, let's get into Living with Tenacity with Ron Corey. Here we go. Um, But the temperature here is almost 110 degrees. And couple that with this monsoon season, my humidity level outside is 45%. Wow. It's pretty brutal. Pretty brutal. You know, it's it's interesting. I think I had that COVID-19 at the very beginning of the year because I was on a cruise uh, like in the Caribbean out east, you know, with a bunch of European people. And I got sick. It was for the New Year's and I got sick like a dog on that thing. And uh, I had just gotten the flu shot like in September. So I don't know. I think I, think I got some of the early parts of it because I've been fine ever since. So Knock on wood. <laughs> you know, the symptoms of COVID-19 are everywhere from asymptomatic to death and yeah. everything in between. Yeah. Healthy well, especially if you guy needed a lung transplant. Yeah, I, I had a friend actually, God, I mean, he had a, an aunt of his that just literally died like this last week because of that. But I mean, she had, you know, she was obese. She had pneumonia like three times in the last, whatever, two years. You know, she, so she was definitely very high risk, you know, for anything. I think the flu probably could have killed her too. So it's just, it's sad, but all you can do is take care of yourself, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's all we got is our own health, our own body, our own mind, you know. I'm sorry, one second. No worries. So you're just celebrating your new book, Tenacity. Yeah, yeah. Pretty exciting, uh, man. Is that your first book? Yeah, first book. First I've book. Been Congratulations. Nice. In all kinds of businesses, but writing a book is a new thing for me. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I was going to ask you, actually, what was the hardest part for you about writing a book? Because I'm on my second one now, and for sure, it's, it's a marathon. I mean, it, it, it definitely, uh, it's a challenge for sure. I was surprised when I decided in 2015, I sold the last of my businesses, which were four car dealerships. Yeah. I had to decide what to do at 63 years old. I was ready, thought I was ready to retire, but I got bored. I suffered from a sense of irrelevance yeah. after being in business for 40 years. And it occurred to me to tell my story. And it, it filled two years actually making it happen. And it's, it's quite rewarding to have gotten that done. And uh, I've, I've been very lucky with the reviews I've been getting on the book. and. Actually, I got a call from a New York production company owner who read my book on a vacation in Miami pre-COVID and asked me if I'd consider letting his company do a made-for-TV movie of my story. Wow, that's awesome. 
said, well, I don't have any competing offers. So, yeah, I'd be yeah. happy to do that. <laughs> and I think made for TV is better because a big screen adaptation would be a 90-minute film. Yeah. And, and if you listen to the audiobook, it's almost six hours long. So you could actually tell the whole story in a multi-part made-for-TV five or six episode thing. And then COVID hit, and he asked me to wait till it was over before he reopened his New York office. He's, he's working from home in New Jersey. So that's pretty exciting that that might happen. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I'll tell you, I remember the first time I got my, my first book in my hands. There's something special about that hard copy, you know, just in your, the final official thing, like you said, it's, it's official. Uh, there's just a special feeling about it. Why did you pick the word tenacity? I mean, I I understand kind of the, some of the things that are the topics in the book, but why specifically tenacity? Like why did that word come to you? During, during one of the battles, my book describes in, in my going into business and the challenges I faced, the team I hired, uh, told me, you know, you're a tenacious SOB. (laughs) And after I actually put pen to paper and went through an outline of my life and, and, and all these stories were told, I had to think about a title and tenacity came to mind. What does it mean to you today, that word? What does that specifically mean to you? You don't succumb to obstacles and challenges. You overcome them. And you find a way to get around them or go through them. Uh, You know, going in in one example in my book, to go into business to develop a neighborhood casino in a city adjacent to Las Vegas and and later find that I'm dealing with a corrupt city councilman who used his small-town police department to do away with me as a competitor in private business uh, and to, to the levels he stooped to do so um, required a level of tenacity, if you will, that um, when offered the chance to have all these threats against me go away, if I just gave up my pursuit of this project, uh, I just, I've not grown to be a person who gives in to bullies. Yeah. So confronting problems and obstacles head on is just in my nature, I suppose. Maybe from serving in the Marine Corps or yeah. growing up in a city like New York. I was going to ask you, I mean, was that something that was always part of who you were or was it part of the Marines? I mean, the Marines is a pretty big deal. You know, that's, I remember reading a book by uh, David Goggins called Can't Hurt Me. I don't know if you've read that book, but I mean, he talks about the SEALs and kind of going through that whole thing. But man, like that's some intense, that's a very intense life path and if you make it through that i mean definitely it's it's changed your character so do you think that that was from the marines or were you were you like that before too like were you standing up to bullies in elementary school and you know well, my book talks about my first couple of experiences in a mugging and having to fight for myself and being outnumbered uh but i don't know that uh anything could replace what the marine corps service instilled in me in a confidence in myself, the ability to handle myself when needed, and to not let failure be an option in whatever I pursued, whether I was on a hunt for cash to buy a business or uh, overcoming some of the political and corrupt challenges that I faced. Uh, Opening a limousine company, I found myself confronted with death threats. Uh, 
back before there were cell phones. People could look up your phone number in a traditional paper phone book and leave death threats on your home phone, striking wow. fear in the heart of my wife, but only serving to piss me off and pursue my goal even harder, which in that scenario, I ultimately prevailed, not only opened presidential limousine service in the 80s, but identified who it was that was trying to be a tough guy and convinced him to back off. Yeah, I mean, how did you, how did you deal with that? Because that's, that, that's a tough situation. I mean, especially when you're coming in as the new guy, right? And there's kind of an old boys club in town and uh, you're outnumbered, you're outpowered in a sense, in some sense. And it's like, how did you, how did you deal with all the corruption and BS around you and the, and the bullying economically, financially? Honestly, you just keep your eye on the ball and you, you get up every day, put your pants on one leg at a time <laughs> and deal with the problems that come and put out the biggest fires first. I had a great business partner. I met him in the Marine Corps. We moved to Las Vegas together. Dan was, was a Marine too. Dan Hughes, yeah. yeah. We, uh, we were roommates when we first moved here. And then when I identified after five years of being a casino dealer, I wanted to buy a tavern. I asked my buddy if he wanted to partner with me. Now, by then, we had each got married and were starting to have kids. And, uh, you know, whether I was going into something alone, I always knew Dan had my back or he would join me if it was a confrontational type meeting. And then I built a crew of managers. One was my brother and two were former Marines that uh, I had a real good team. And I think part of success in business is heavily reliant on the people that you choose to surround yourself with. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Uh, I had a, a group of guys that were great support people for me making my vision happen, whatever it might be the second, third or fourth neighborhood casino, the limousine business. And, uh, of course some businesses we just opened and there were no challenges, but there were a couple that required some creative thinking a little bit of thinking outside the box and prevailing in the face of adversity. So much good stuff, man. I'm so curious. Like what did you, what got you into being like an entrepreneur? I mean, you know, you've done so many different business things. A lot of people when they're done with, were you, let me put it this way, before going to the Marines, were you very business minded and that was just kind of the Marines kind of gave you that foundation or did you come out of the Marines? You weren't really sure what to do. You kind of started with one business and just, you know, when went on about it, you really liked it. Like, how was it for you? Well, I enlisted at the age of 19. I, I really didn't have a lot of business experience. Yeah. But uh, when I went into the service, didn't know if I'd make a career of it or just do the two years I enlisted for. And fortuitously, during boot camp, we were trained to go to Vietnam. That was actively going on. Wow. But by the time boot camp was winding to its end, President Nixon announced de-escalation. Other, uh, other troops wouldn't be sent in, and so many thousand a month were being pulled out. So while during boot camp, Dan and I didn't know where we might get stationed, uh, the world was possible anywhere in the world. We ended up in a small desert town two hours out of Vegas called Barstow where the Marines have a supply center. And it makes perfect sense. It's in the middle of a desert. Uh, armory 
bullets, there's no rust, and there's a rail uh, service in Barstow that took you to San Diego, which is where the Navy delivers the Marines. That's, the, that's our transportation to go into battle. So uh, Dan and I got stationed in Barstow, and we'd hit Vegas on weekends. Ended up getting uh, done with our two-year tour of duty. Give Vegas a try before going back east. Dan was from Philadelphia. I was from Brooklyn. And uh, I came to Vegas, became a casino dealer. Dan had experience from Philly as a screen printer. And back in the day before digital printing, slot machine fronts were screen printed. Wow, and really? Screen printing was what Dan <laughs> knew before joining Marines himself. Interesting. So he went into screen printing. I went into casino dealing. And a couple of years later, I, did, I pursued the purchase of a tavern, asked Dan to partner with me. And uh, that was in 1979. And then gaming became worldwide rather than just based in Vegas and Atlantic City. Gaming blew up. Yeah. And we saw a new opportunity using Dan's skill set in screen printing slot machine glass and reel strips, the, the three reels that spin that people try to line up the sevens and the cherries. Mm -hmm. We opened Suburban Graphics with a $100,000 SBA loan and four employees, which within a couple of years, we grew it to a 120 employee business wow. working two shifts selling over $12 million a year in gaming products wow. to manufacturers and casinos around the world. And I was running the taverns, Dan ran Suburban Graphics, and then we parlayed that into a limousine service and a number of other businesses. And then as my book describes, uh, after doing that for over 20 years, we sold Suburban Graphics, Dan retired, and I went into business with another friend who was in the car business, moved here from Texas, and we purchased the Hyundai dealership in 2010. And we built that into three dealerships in Vegas and a large three-brand dealership in Monterey, California. Wow. Did that for five years, sold it at a nice profit, and uh, then I had to re redefine who I was going to be. Yeah. I was post-esophageal cancer by that time. I didn't have the energy level I once enjoyed, but my brain still worked. I knew I was not ready to do nothing, but I wasn't ready to go into something and work 16 hours a day. Yeah. So writing a book, and then after one writes a book, they learn that you have to market it. Otherwise, the world isn't going to know that it exists. Yeah. No, one, no one is going to wake up one day type the word tenacity on Amazon and buy my book unless they hear something about it. Right. So I've been doing podcasts like yours. Um, if someone goes to my website, ronquarryauthor.com, spelled C-O-U-R-Y, uh, there's a YouTube link for a 30-minute TV commercial I've been running. And it's been pretty exciting and interesting, marketing a book and uh, some of the feedback I get been great fun what, what do you think uh has been kind of the common pattern like when people reach out to you after they've read the book and your story what has been kind of the, the biggest breakthrough for most of them that they or maybe they're all different but what seems to be the common message when people experience most, your book most of those that found me and had questions 
were related to their pursuit of their dream. Mm. Um, they were thinking about going into business for themselves, were struggling with putting their money up and risking it and uh, making it a reality. Yeah. And wanted to pick my brain about how do you decide whether or when to pull the trigger? How do you know for sure that your dream is going to be profitable? And I've had some interesting discussions with people via emails or an email and then a phone call telling them what criteria I employed. And, you know, there, there are so many things to decide when you're going into business with what's the marketplace for what you're trying to do. Uh, what's your pursuit? What's your customer base going to be? Is there a real market for it? Are you priced right? So that's been the bulk of the contacts is people wanting to go into business for themselves and hoping to not make a mistake. So asking questions. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask you because you call yourself a niche finder. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I'm yeah. curious. I mean, obviously you're good at it. So, I mean, the question is what, you know, what is your, your radar? <laughs> like, what do you look for? You know, when you take these businesses and you, uh, you know, transform them, you know, into something very profitable that, that you can then move on from. Like what's been your, no, you're fine. Yeah. What's been your I, guideline? I don't know that you find them as much as they find you. Mm, interesting. Uh, as a casino dealer, I was thinking one day, I'd really like to do something that would provide an income to my family and me so I could pay my bills, whether or not I was able to come to work. And I wondered what type of businesses I could consider since I didn't stay in school and get a degree in any particular field. So purchasing a tavern seemed pretty perfect for a guy that was in good shape, knew how to handle himself because back in the late 70s, early 80s, you didn't have the drinking and driving awareness that we have today. Mm. A guy would come in your bar, pound down 15 drinks, and sometimes you'd have to escort them out. Wow. You know, now people are much more conscious about how much they drink. But it wasn't like that back then. So the tavern business was, was good for me to get into. And then uh, because Dan was so good at what he did, we talked about pursuing that on an entrepreneurial level. And he said, well, there's nobody to sell slot glass to. I work at Valley's. Valley makes machines. And they make most of the machines in the world. Well, then a guy named Cy Red developed an interactive game called Video Poker. Now, today, you walk through a casino, there are all kinds of interactive games. But it started with Video Poker. Mm -hmm. And after Cy Red made Video Poker such a hit, the world filled with manufacturers of different types of machines. Mm. And, and Dan came back to me and said, remember years ago, you, you asked about going into screen printing, and I told you there were no customers. Well, now there are. There's all these independent slot manufacturers that can develop a computer chip for a game, but they don't want to make the cabinets and the steel frames and the slot glass. So we opened Suburban Graphics. So that, that's an example of one. Using the local limousine services, I noticed that they were nothing but glorified taxis. And when I went out of town and didn't want to drive a rental car because I planned on having a couple of drinks, I would hire a car with a driver. And the drivers were 
dressed nicely, the cars were beautiful, and it was nothing like here in Vegas. And I thought the entertainment capital of the world should have a limousine service indicative of the type of clientele we serve. And that's how Presidential Limousine came to mind. It's actually the name of a limousine service I used in San Diego that impressed me so much when I decided to build a stretch-only tuxedoed chauffeur limousine service, I gave it the name Presidential based on my experience in San Diego with Presidential Limousine Service there. So this, these are examples of how being a niche finder, sometimes you find the niche and sometimes the niche finds you. Yeah, it's uh, there's a saying, isn't there? It's God, it's like uh, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have to really definitely be paying attention. I mean, uh, there is, there is something to other things finding you for sure. And it's, there's also part of it, I think, where you have an awareness, you know, you're just paying attention, like you pay attention for sure. And, and you see the opportunities and obviously have the, the guts to strike. What you, your partner, what is, uh, what is the one quality you'd think that that made him such a good partner for you? Because having a business partner is difficult, especially, you know, one, uh, that you've had for such a long period of time, you've done so many things with what's made him such a good partner for you? Well, you know, we were friends first, we were Marines together. So there was a trust and a loyalty to one another that are really great precursors to going into business together. I think a lot of partnerships break up because one partner is not honest with the other, Mm. whether they're taking money or, or, or enjoying services or whatever abuses someone might pursue and Dan being my best friend and a fellow former Marine moving the town with me, going into partnership together, never even required a second thought. You know, we would each do our best to make the business succeed. Do you think that people should go into partnerships with their friends? Well, sometimes going or into family, I guess <laughs> necessary because you need more money. Yeah. And sometimes people aren't willing to loan you money. They want to participate in the, the vision, the business. Yeah. Uh, I personally, now the car business was a different friend from Texas, Don Tambora. We were friends before we were partners. I already knew I liked the guy. I admired what he did in Texas with three car dealerships. So uh, I was very comfortable going into business with him when he invited me to join him in a business in Vegas. In fact, when he sold his dealerships in Texas and moved to Vegas with the thoughts that he'd be retired, he contacted me to pursue a liquor gaming opportunity and have me teach him that business. Mm. When we couldn't find anything that was, it was either too small or too big for us, he was notified of a car dealership that was for sale. And he said one day, I know we started this project looking for a a gaming property to buy, but I just learned of a Hyundai dealership for sale. What do you think about learning the car business from me? I said, if I've proven nothing over the years, it's that I'm always willing to try a new business. I love learning something new. So we purchased a Hyundai dealership here and developed a second one. And then we purchased the Kia dealership and developed the properties in California. And it works out great for me because the friends that I've chosen to go into business with 
were already good, loyal friends. And we were honest with one another, and we achieved incredible successes together financially. Do you think you made any mistakes with Dan? Or did you guys ever have any situations where there were, yeah, whatever, any well, situations? Like that? No, no, Not we really. went into four, four neighborhood casinos together. We opened Suburban Graphics. One of the niches about having a graphics company that was printing so much slot glass, we went into a wholesale glass and mirror company together, which was uh, our sixth business together. And we each went to work every day, putting out whatever the biggest fires were in either business. This yeah. focus was suburban graphics because that had 120 employees and that was his skill set. But if I ever needed help at one of the taverns or at the glass shop, Dan was a phone call away. And uh, we never had a problem. We ended up selling the businesses and uh, Dan was able to retire, fly his plane, enjoy his boat in San Diego, and we still get together for lunch uh, every couple of months. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, that's really cool. I mean, it, it definitely the trust is the biggest thing, especially with any kind of partnership. It's, I think, more than, uh, you know, you don't, like how there was a saying about like hiring for trust versus hiring for brains or something like that. I don't remember how it goes right now, but it was like, you know, there's somebody could be very talented or very sharp. Uh, but if there's that, if that trust isn't there, then it doesn't matter. I mean, you're just going to burn yourself a bridge at, at some point. Yeah. 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 And it's important to really enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. I, mean, I went, I went into every day looking forward, not only to the successes, but to, to, to the challenges that you'd be confronted with. And to find the best solution to a problem and come out the other side feeling good about how you solved it, whether you brainstormed it with your partner or you resolved it yourself. Um, I, I really enjoyed being in business for myself, which is why I went into about 20 businesses. What was your biggest mistake in business and what did you learn from it? You know, I really, I'm having trouble identifying a mistake because everything I did, I made an, an informed decision to go into it. Yeah, and, and we prevailed. We yeah. ultimately built up the business, sold it at a profit. Um, I wouldn't call it a mistake, yeah. but if I had it to do over, many of the businesses we we've had, me and Dan or me and Don, we owned the property. And if I had it to do over, I would have preferred to sell the business and keep the property. Mm. I'm currently. With Don, we're the landlord of a Kia dealership we used to operate. Someone bought the dealership but didn't buy the property. And I enjoy being a landlord. It's great when your duties of the month is depositing a rent check. <laughs> yeah, corporate real estate's where it's at, man. I've been looking yeah. to do that with some friends too, just kind of, especially here in Phoenix, there's a bunch of real estate that's just available all the time and, and uh, just having a, a big ass building and rent it out. I mean, it's an interesting, interesting area for sure. I mean, especially. Yeah, I, that's what I would do over. I'd keep the property. Hmm. I you know you're in Phoenix. My, my oldest son, Joe lives in Scottsdale. Oh, what part? Like uh, North Scottsdale, South Scottsdale. Uh, North 92nd street is his address. Okay. Yeah. He works on a ranch uh, close to where he lives. He, he had no ranching experience. Wow. But that was when he was in the restaurant business when COVID hit, 
So all the food service places closed. Oh, yeah. And uh, he needed to find a job. He's got two young boys and a wife. And uh, there was a job opportunity at a ranch, and he loved raising cattle and stallions. It's a, it's a peaceful life. You know, you get to really connect to nature and animals. I mean, uh, I've actually – it's so funny how we change, you know, as, as time moves on. I, I used to never even dream about being on a farm or anything. But now, to be honest with you, I'm getting more connected with, like, nature. And I, it would be nice to have, like, my own place with a, you know, a giant garden, grow your own food, that kind of thing. I mean, I don't know. There's something – peaceful about it you know just to connect to all those different things rather than being with there's your head a lot to be said for self-sufficiency yeah yeah absolutely and the calm the calm of being on a ranch or a farm yeah i i don't think it'll work i'm gonna turn this i'm in my game room on the third floor of my home but out here uh these are windows the sun is creating a lot of glare but i live on a lake oh nice but it is so calm looking out at 30 acres of water. Oh, yeah. It's electric boat only, so it's quiet all the time. Uh, you can fish, you can boat, canoe, kayak. And the kind of peace you're talking about on a farm, I enjoy this relatively calm lifestyle in the middle of the desert on a man-made lake. And uh, it's, it's very peaceful. That's one of my goals right now. People can't see it, but it's I got a fake Zoom background with a Hawaii beach or something. <laughs> oh, oh, that's not your back window. No, okay. no, that's a fake, <laughs> fake ass background. But it's uh, it's I'm painting future pictures. Let's put it that way. That's a, ah, okay. One yeah, day that'll be nice. my office. <laughs> You've grown a lot of businesses, and I'm curious one thing because there's there's definitely a lot of questions about that. I mean, when you grow a business, one thing is for sure is that the more people you add the more entropy there is. There's the more fires to put out. There's more shit going on. I mean, you, you really have to maintain company culture. You have to know how to hire. You have to know how to maintain morale. You know, how have you done that? Like over the course of, you know, from point A to point B, what have been some strategies that you use to keep the company culture so that you could ultimately, I mean, the whole point of growing a business, you could sell it and move on. Uh, unless, you know, if that's your thing and you want to stay with the business. But let's say you want to sell a business, you want to make sure that it can keep going after you're gone. So how do you, you know, how do you, how'd you do that? I mean, how'd you grow up from like 10 people with the, uh, with that one company, I forget the name now, but to 120 people, the screen printing one. Yeah, Suburban Graphics. Yeah, Suburban well, Graphics. When, when we had Suburban Graphics, it was 48,000 square feet of building on three acres. Wow. We, we were an art shop, an art development company for the concept of the slot machines, and then a production facility to actually print the glass and reel strips, and then a shipping department. Wow. So we had a large corporate office in the front, and uh, the answer to your question is hiring good people, just like the three guys that I hired to help me run the bars when Dan and I found ourselves in more of a corporate environment with the managers running the, the neighborhood taverns. Uh, we hired a, a great CFO, uh, Jennifer Tarter. Uh, she was actually, uh, she came to work for us as a receptionist right out of high school. She went to college while working for us, became a CPA, and came back to work for us as our chief financial officer, where she oversaw all our business holdings and gave Dan and I the opportunity when we wanted to go, he or I or both of us, out of town, uh, she would make decisions, knowing us as long as she did, in our stead, the same decision-making process we would employ, she employed. 
So by surrounding yourself with the right people and giving them a position of authority, and most importantly, when you hire people, get out of the way and let them do the jobs you hire them for. Don't micromanage them. And, what, and Jennifer did a great job at that for us. What do you look for when you're hiring somebody, especially for CFO, you know, a big kind of position? What particularly uh, in terms of character we're talking now, you know, what, what was been some of the determining factors in your decision to hire somebody and how did you go about that process? Obviously, you know, you're not going to really know a person until you know them, but what allowed you to be successful in hiring people to be able to delegate to and to replace you eventually? What were you looking for? Early days, Dan and I were very hands-on. I made the rounds of each of our taverns every morning. I did an inspection with the site manager. I made sure it was being run the way I would want to run it myself before I stepped away. Uh, Dan was at the graphics company every day, walking the shop, overseeing the printing. But when you hire someone, now in Jennifer's case, she was right out of high school. We were just hiring a receptionist to answer the phones in our lobby. But you get to know someone. You admire the way they operate every day, their punctuality, um, the, the fact that they care about the business enough that certain decisions they make, you, you just know they're your kind of people. And you promote them within the company to a level, in Jennifer's case, that she, that she grew into. And uh, just knowing and liking someone is, is the starting point. Mm-hmm. If they're going to work with you, you're spending almost as much time with them in awake hours as you're spending with your spouse at home. Oh, yeah. Darn well better like them, trust them, and, and appreciate their decision-making process if you're going to delegate authority to them to oversee one of your businesses. What do you think was the hardest thing for you to delegate? Well, I'd say the toughest thing for me personally was when I opened the new tavern, I was there every day running. And then I would have a manager under my wing. They would see how I operated so that when I stepped away to, to go into opening my next business, they could just keep coming in. I'd like to use the term, what would Ron do? When, when they were confronted with a problem and I wasn't right there, they had spent months with me seeing how I dealt with the challenges and the obstacles that came up. And then they would make their decision based on what I would have done. And only by letting your people that you're going to entrust with your business shadow you and actually live your life eight hours a day and see how you deal with the stresses, problems with employee issues or, or corporate decisions. It's the only way they're going to make the same decisions you would have made had you been there. What was the hardest? I mean, when you... I'm assuming you've had to let some people go, right, in the course of the whole growing process, or did you keep, you know, did you keep your same core staff, or did you have a lot of turnover? Let's put it that way. Like with there's, the, a, there's a lot of turnover in certain businesses. Yeah. What you know, was, some people want to make more money or learn more or grow, but you can't always promote them. There's not enough positions at the time. Yeah. So sometimes you have to tell someone, You're great, and if something opens up, I'll certainly consider you for it, but they may not be willing to wait, and then they find an opportunity that may pay more or may offer greater growth, and you've got to wish them luck. Sometimes they come back saying, you know, I really took for granted how good it was to work here. Could I work for you again? Do you have anything for me? 
and sometimes they excelled in their new position. What do you think was the hardest business for you and the easiest one out of all the ones you've done? There were different, when we say hard, there are different types of challenges. Yeah. Uh, opening this neighborhood casino where we had a corrupt city councilman legislating our business license. That's crazy, with the, man. With the corrupt police detective who would frame me, ultimately would frame me with felony charges to do away with me because this councilman had a competing graphics company. Wow. Tonight, which man. I didn't know when I purchased this property to develop a neighborhood casino in because Dan was running the graphics company. He knew that this councilman owned the piece of this other graphics company, but I didn't. I mean, the topic would never come up in passing with Dan. So here we are uh, with him, you know, kind of under his thumb as one of our regulators. And I come to find out the reason. He not only had a competing graphics company, which we were beating on almost every job we bid against him on, but he also had drawing board plans for three neighborhood casinos in his city. So those were his, that was his rationale for trying to do it away with me as a competitor. And my book, Tenacity, goes into detail about how that developed, how I overcame the, the struggles he put in my, in my way, and the payback that I was very happy to deliver to him for what he did to me. I don't want to be a spoiler. Yeah. People need to either <laughs> read the book or get the audio book. By the way, my audio book was done by actor Michael Madsen from Donnie Brasco and Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I saw that. That's pretty awesome, man. I mean, I a great voice for my book. How long did that take? Because I'm curious about doing an audio book and whether or not I should pay somebody to do it and hire them. Did that take a long time for that to be recorded well, and produced? My book is just under six hours in length when you listen to the audio file. Yeah. So when I made a deal with Michael to hire him, brought him to Vegas from Malibu, put him in a suite at the Bellagio, where I like to play Texas Hold'em poker, so I'm familiar with the property, and I reserved a week in a recording studio, picked him up every morning at 9 o'clock, drove him there, I sat in the editing room with the editor. Michael was in a sound room with the headphones and uh, the script. And ultimately, it took us five days. We worked six to eight hours a day for him to read the whole story. Because wow. you don't just read the story. The editor will chime in and say, you need to say that word again or repeat that sentence. And so there's a, a lot of reading. In fact, over 40 hours of reading that ultimately became a six hour book yeah. when the editing is done, but it was well worth it. I mean, yeah. this book stands out among other books, if not for the uniqueness of going from Brooklyn to Vegas through the Marine Corps and all the things that my story tells people about, but to have Michael Madsen read it, you hear his voice and you think of all these 300 movies he's been in. Yeah, it adds a presence to it for sure. I mean, it's a whole different story, especially when you have somebody that's very recognizable, you know, with a, a strong voice. I mean, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. You had uh, esophageal cancer too. We didn't talk about that. I mean, what, what happened with that? Was that recent or did it happen a little well, while ago? 15, 15 years ago. 15 years ago? A little over 15, but I, I made it a point to go through very 
detailed annual physicals yeah. in Santa Barbara, California. When Vegas was a small town, all small towns suffer the same fate. You don't have a lot of professionals coming here because you don't have the residential population to support it. So back in the 70s and 80s, people would go to California for good medical care. Well, uh, a friend of mine who was the undersheriff at the time, Eric Cooper, um, told me about Dr. Jim Murray in Santa Barbara. Talked about a three-day physical and all uh, the hotel owners in Vegas and owners of banks went to see Dr. Murray. So I started going to see him. And in the back of my mind, there was this family history of cancer. My dad, his two brothers, and his sisters all died from cancer. Wow. Same type of so, cancer or just different types? Well, his, my, my dad had pancreatic. His brothers died from stomach cancer. Wow. Uh, his sisters died from breast cancer. But I always thought that cancer was in my future, not a question of if, but when. So for over 20 years, I went for a three-day annual physical with Dr. Murray. And I was in great shape, 185 pounds, muscular, I appear very thin here on the Zoom call because of the cancer. Um, in uh, 2005, Dr. Murray de detected an uh, esophageal tumor, sent me to USC Hospital where someone there, Dr. Tom Demeester, specialized in the unique procedure, which is esophageal cancer, uh, uh, an esophagectomy is the procedure name. Wow. Only 8% of the people that develop esophageal cancer survive it. Wow. So it wasn't great news. I actually came back to Vegas, planned my funeral so my kids wouldn't have to do it. Wow. Or going to USC for my surgery two weeks later. But they take out your esophagus, which is uh, between your throat and your stomach. And in my case, took out half my stomach and then pulled up what was left of my stomach to my throat. So one of the things of not having an esophagus, which is at the base of which is a flap that keeps food down. When people talk about indigestion or GERD or acid reflux, that's when the flap, as you get older, gets weaker. Yeah. And when you lay flat, your acid in your stomach comes up to your throat. So when you don't have an esophagus, you can't lay flat. You can't be upside down. You have to stay somewhat elevated. So you buy an adjustable bed and you're happy you're still alive. The only thing is I can't eat enough to put the weight back on. So I went into the hospital at 185. A month later, after surgery, I came out at about 135. And I've gotten up to about 150. And I kind of maxed out at that weight in pounds. Um, can't quite get to the 185 I was at. So although to myself I appear thin, my doctors tell me I'm healthy. And they'd rather have me thin than overweight. And uh, here I am now, 15 years post-cancer surgery. Wow, man, that's, that's incredible. And do you, I mean, so basically, you said the stomach is attached to your throat right now. You don't have an esophagus. That's basically. correct. They, do a, they remove the esophagus and do a stomach pull-up. And in my case, it was half a stomach. And, wow. and so your stomach is, I mean, half of it was removed, and the rest of it was stretched up to the throat. So wow. you deal with a great deal of discomfort when you eat, which they give me medication to take. It's a traditional pain pill, but it enables me to eat more before the pain 
really hits you so hard you can't keep eating. Wow. But as far as taking in enough calories, just living life, you burn calories. Many people don't know it, but you burn a couple of hundred calories just sleeping. So I need to make sure I ingest enough calories to, to be more than what I'm burning in living life every day to try to maintain weight. Were you smoking or doing anything that like, or it just happened? Like never smoked, but if you're in the casino and tavern business, oh, taking a lot of secondhand smoke. smoke. Yeah. And then my dad's brothers, I mean, stomach cancer is not too far afield from esophageal cancer. Yeah. So whether it was genetic or secondhand smoke, I'm, I'm very happy to say I, I beat it and uh, survived 15 years post-surgery. That's incredible, man. I mean, what was, what was the thing that you think helped you the most kind of persevere or survive through this experience? I mean, mindset same, is so important, but. Same thing that was, it was in business. Failure is not an option. Yeah. I just went into every day looking to, I mean, if it was right after surgery, I wanted to get out of the bed. I wanted to walk. I wanted to start moving, try to start working out again, get my, some muscle tone back. I mean, there was, I was a year after surgery in bed, a month in the hospital, and then uh, 11 months at home. Wow. So you have muscle atrophy. You, you have to rebuild everything. You have to get your wind back and develop some muscle tone. So uh, just don't let failure be an option. Take it on like you would a business challenge and uh, pursue every day with a level of vigor and inspiration that uh, you come out the other side. That's incredible, man. That is, I mean, you're in the, you're in the 8%. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, regrettably, my wife, Joan, um, we had three kids, but two years after my surgery, she developed colon cancer. And two years later, it took her. Wow. That's nuts. 11 years ago. Wow. It's, it's unfortunately a very prevalent thing these days. You know, we have so many toxins and so many, um, you know, just so many assaults in our environment from, from yeah. everything, from food, food we eat, you know, from the poisons in the air, from pollution. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Once you really start reading about it, you're like, wow, everything's going to cause cancer. We need to be like super disciplined with what I eat and put in my body. I mean. The longer we live, Tudor, yeah, you know, that's true. Every, everybody will develop some form of cancer if they live long enough, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, and so all I can tell your viewers are uh, that a big lesson is early detection. Yeah. Me being aggressive, going for an annual checkup, and, and in my case, the radiology report, when I told Dr. Murray in 2005, uh, he said anything different the past year? I said, well, I seem to clear my throat a lot. He goes, hmm, sends me for a barium swallow. The radiologist report comes back at the end of the three day of testing of different, you know, physical testing. And the radiologist wrote, it looked like a little food particle at the base of the esophagus. We should recheck it next year. Now, thank God for Dr. Jim Murray, because I could have been sent back to Vegas saying, okay, we'll, we'll take another barium swallow test next year. Not Dr. Murray. He said, Ron, if it's not a food particle, you won't be here next year. Wow. He said, I'd like you to stay over an extra day. I want to get you on an endoscopy table 
this afternoon. Let's see that that is a food particle. Let's know for sure. Well, he sets me up with the surgeon who does an upper endoscopy, goes down, I'm on a, I'm, a, I'm knocked out, I'm on a surgical table in, a, in an operating room, and he goes down with a scope, and turns out it was a baby tumor, which is why they, Dr. Murray then sent me to USC Hospital, and Dr. Demeester said, all I do is esophageal cancer treatment. I never have worked with someone with a tumor so young. How did Dr. Murray find it? I'm amazed that he found it so early. Wow. Because the esophageal is, esophagus is a very thin organ. For it to grow very quickly and pierce the esophageal wall and spread in your body would have occurred in six months, I've learned later. Wow. It wouldn't have been back in a year. It would have grown beyond the ability to, to deal with, and I'd have been dead. And, and thanks to Dr. Murray's method of dealing with medicine, uh, he pursued it, we identified it, removed it, removed it a month later, and the challenges of post-esophagectomy surgery uh, have been challenging, but I'm happy to say that I'm on the other side of it. That's amazing, man. Wow. Early detection. That's my message. Do you do anything for your health currently like anything to be preventive i mean other than obviously being proactive with your physicals but do you do anything yeah i get a very detailed blood scan every six months they check for everything and an annual physical once a year but i dodged a bullet and the odds are very unlikely another cancer would find me but if it does it's going to show up in a scan or blood work and uh, I hope to get an early jump on it. Yeah. Amazing, man. Anything coming up for you that you're excited? Any projects, any vacations? Well, I'm in a new project called Square Panda, which is a learning tool for children from two to eight to learn how to read and spell. I'm on the founding board of Square Panda. Uh, people can see what it does going to squarepanda.com. But one of our board members and initial investors is Andre Agassi, the tennis legend. Oh, wow. So I enjoy our, uh, our board meetings. Getting to know Andre has been great. He lives in Las Vegas. He's a super guy, a great partner. And we're looking to launch Square Panda in India, China. And we're, in, we're going into multiple school districts around the United States right now. So wow. I'm excited about that. I think it's going to be an investment for me that's going to be very rewarding financially and serving on the board of directors is uh, fun and challenging. It's unlike the small businesses Dan and I have started and grown. This could be a very big deal, and I've always wanted to help steer a large shift in a, in a positive financial direction, and Square Panda could be just that type of experience. Do you find that you have anybody on that board that you don't see eye to eye with? Like I've, I've never really had an experience to be on a board of any kind. So how does that work? You're all obviously equal voting members other than. Yeah. 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 Our CEO does most of the research as it is in most corporations. Yeah. When there are board decisions to be made, we meet these days via zoom, but we used to meet in either in Vegas or in Silicon Valley where we're based. And the CEO will tell us what he's been working on, 
will vote and usually take his recommendation. A board member who all come from different aspects of the business community might have questions. It might affect the course we take. But for the most part, all board votes are unanimous. And uh, we just do what's best for the company and the different people that have invested in our company. Yeah. I also enjoy serving on the board of the Wounded Blue, uh, which is uh, a charity that raises money nationally to help wounded police officers that might work in a jurisdiction that can't provide them the financial assistance they need due to their on-the-job injury. Wow. And I'm on the board of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Foundation, uh, which is another rewarding thing. It doesn't pay uh, money, but I can enjoy the luxury of doing things that feel good with my investments supporting me financially. And uh, those are the things that fill my day for the most part and marketing my book like we're doing right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. It's, it's a great book. I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into it myself. One more question for you. What are you most grateful for today? I am most grateful for Dr. Murray, early cancer detection, or yeah. I wouldn't be here today. I would have predeceased my That's wife crazy, for two years, man. and our kids would grow up without both parents. That's crazy. That's just, you know, when you think about these moments in time when it could have gone totally south, you know, and it didn't, obviously, but... Yeah. That's crazy. And is this doctor still alive? Yeah. Um, although I don't travel to Santa Barbara anymore, and Dr. Murray, for the most part, is retired. Oh, gotcha. I call, I call him at home in Santa Barbara about once a month because he's treated me for nearly 30 years. I consider him a friend. Yeah. And uh, I like talking to him. And if anything serious developed with me medically, you know, he's not fully retired. He still sees a couple of casino owners uh, medically, but... Uh, I would go see Dr. Murray if I had any serious health issues. All right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with my friend, Ron. You know, I hope it's inspired you to take your challenges on, whatever they happen to be, whether they're financial, health, relationship challenges, whatever it happens to be, we're always having challenges, right? Life is never short on challenges, but Ron's story is so inspiring. He's such a genuine guy, and I hope it really inspired you to see yourself a little bit in that story, to see what challenges you have and how you can live with tenacity as well. If you want to connect with Ron, he's on social media as Ron Corey Author, or you can uh, get a copy, free copy of his book at roncoreyauthor.com. Hope you enjoyed this episode, guys. Make sure you share it with at least one person that you think, well, this will make a difference in their life. If somebody's going through a tough time, if they need to hear this message about living with tenacity, make a difference in their life and share it with them. And let's not forget good old Abe Lincoln. It is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak up and remove all doubt. Don't just speak carefully in life, but decide carefully. You can't prepare for everything. You can't control everything. But making good decisions, whether it's in your business, your health, your relationships, that's what it all boils down to. Are your decisions in alignment? And when you make a bad one, that's okay. You'll still learn. Just use a little tenacity. Thank you guys so much for listening, for being here with me today. Tune in next week. I'm going to be interviewing my friend and coach, Trisha Reed, on 
biohacking, chakras, transformation, all kinds of stuff. It's going to be actually a pretty awesome interview. We're going to be unpacking a lot of stuff in a lot of different areas, health, you know, transformation, personal growth, self-worth, a lot of great stuff. So next week is all about transformation. Tuesday transformation, I'll give you a couple tips on how to immediately change your life today. Well, not today because it'll be the past by then, but by the time you get to Tuesday, you'll get some tips to change it that day, I promise. So make sure you tune in next week. Check out that uh, interview with Trisha. Look forward to seeing you there. Until then, remember, your life is a dance. So go out there and dance it well. For more inspiration, free resources, and bonus content, stay connected at danceoflife.com.